and welcome back to Literally Literary. If this is your first time joining us, be sure to check out our previous episodes. This episode, we will continue our discussion on Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Last episode, we gave a general overview of real life. This episode, we will focus on the first half of the novel. Welcome back, y'all. Um, we're going to submerge ourselves into the first half of, the no- of um, Brandon Taylor's novel today. And uh, we have a lot to... Um, a lot of ground to cover, uh, but it's only the three, the first three chapters. But in, in it's about halfway through the novel. Last time we had gone over some of the themes, some of the characters, some of the writing style. Uh, but we're gonna just kick things off with the very beginning. I know you, Vanessa, had mentioned that you wanted to discuss the opening scene. Yes. So um, these first like three pages really give a good overview of the setting and who Wallace is and why he or how he looks at the world and um, especially since one of the first sentences is announcing to us that his father passed away several weeks ago yeah I think last episode you meant you mentioned the uh, Gatsby I guess it's kind of like a reference and that first paragraph kind of reminds me like the endlessly ceasing Mm-hmm. waves you know the description of the, mm. the environment i guess and it just he has this way of also um thinking about the internal world his internal world um in contrast with the outside world you know i guess real life as you were saying like the way he describes everyone and there's this insular nature to it right like a contrast of his world i guess and then just you know the way he describes other groups of people around and they're like in their groups he says other groups of white other white people right because he's looking for his particular group of white people which i think <laughs> is so uh, a fascinating way of doing it and um yeah spot on vanessa this is a nice introduction to his kind of inner inner yeah. thoughts of perceiving the world around him yeah and um it um it's also kind of what you just mentioned that, that it's he um the narrator is highlighting that they're white and so um you know that that's important for the for our protagonist, you know, because he's black, and it's something that you know we'll talk about later on in some other scenes. Beyond the 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 setting that makes it very, um, you know, you get that um, immediate. Even though we're in an un, we're somewhere in the Midwest, it seems um, like um, almost like a like a New England quality to it, you know, or, or like. Um, Maine or something, you know, mm-hmm. one of Stephen King's novels. Um, what else, Vanessa, in the opening chapter did you want to uh, highlight? Um, so this one also really showcases the relationships that Wallace has with everyone. Um, so initially, when we're first introduced to Miller, I really like the way that um, it's described on page 13. Um, so the relationship doesn't necessarily stay this way but it's the way that we're first introduced to Miller um so they get into they kind of are passive aggressive towards one another or they'll make little comments to one another um and it ends up with them just being sort of distant and the way that it's described is it says and they fell into that chilly silence that comes between two people who ought to be close but who are not because of some early critical miscalculation yeah, why did you like that strong line and kind of in even outside of that context, like um, you know, with Miller in particular, like Miller and Wallace, I mean, 
Mm. I think it's interesting because you later the relationship changes, but mm. they're at this moment they don't really talk. There's like, mm-hmm. I guess you could say that they're civil civil with one another, mm-hmm. um, but they wouldn't consider each other friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the narrator also tells us that. Both of them had been the first in their families to go to college, right? So now it's their first generation. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we've covered a lot of works already where we get like first generation, you know, college students. Um, so it's kind of interesting what we get that for, with them too. And it kind of maybe presents a way for them to bond as well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The narrator acknowledges yeah. like that's another great line because yeah. it acknowledges that they ought to be close. There's those yeah, similarities. They where, have a lot in common. And so it kind of maybe does foreshadow them getting closer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you mentioned this very human element where sometimes you just get off to the wrong start. Mm-hmm. And even though it shouldn't be that way, like you kind of ha- ha- keep some distance, emotional distance between between people mm-hmm. early on. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of um, the James Joyce style of mm. capturing, the, you know, seemingly... Um, um, you know, um, standard scenes right here, like a dinner party, mm-hmm. and um, it reminds me a lot of particularly of like the dead, his short story, The Dead. Um, so, um, I had one on page 32, but I think you probably had one before that. Um, I just have one on page 30. Um, it's, I guess, the second paragraph. Um, I really like this description of like that feeling right before you're about to start crying. Um, So it says, there was a knot of tension high in his chest, something hard and coiled. It felt like a black ball stuck to the inside of his lungs. His stomach hurt too. He had eaten nothing but soup all day. The surface of his hunger was rough, like a cat's tongue. Pressure gathered in the back of his eyes. Oh, he thought when he realized what it was. Tears. Yeah, and we talked about this last time with the style of, of um, Brandon's writing that he's mm-hmm. able to capture these emotions and, and feelings really yeah. well, right? And yes. re- like really describe them precisely. Um, and here when talking about um, the, the fact that his father had died, it, um, I, I think it can apply to any kind of, you know, situation where, like you said, like you kind of have like, a, you might have, someone might have like a panic attack Mm-hmm. Um, and you do kind of feel like that, you know, and, um, all the more so cause it's a social situation, right? So he kind of has to like keep it inside too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here in particular, this is a scene where Emma comes in and Emma, um, is, um, where she's described as having an olive complexion on page 31, but she is white, except we're told that, um, her grandparents are like Czech, uh, and then on one side, and then a Sicilian on the other. Um, but because they're not white men, we're, just, we're told that, you know, that's one way that Emma and Wallace can bond. And, you know, we talked about academic, the ac- academia, and how toxic it can become. And I think it's important to note that that's one way that they are able to bond. Mm. Um on page 32 is where I had my passage. And I think you had this one too, right, Vanessa? I might think so. Um, so, you know what? Emma picks up that something is wrong. 
and just um, he blurts, uh, Wallace blurts out, or Wally as they come to call him, my dad died. And, um, you know, uh, Emma tells him, I'm sorry, Wallace, I'm sorry for your loss. And the narrator says he smiled because he was not sure how to meet someone's sympathy for him. It always seemed to him that when people were sad for you, they were sad for themselves, as if your misfortune was were just an excuse for them to feel what it was they wanted to feel. Sympathy was a kind of ventriloquism. His father had died hundreds of miles away. Wallace had not told anyone. His brother had called him. Then came the social media posts, those concerned and those just after, that ugly, frothing spectacle of public mourning. It was strange, Wallace thought as he smiled at Emma, because he didn't feel a crushing sense of loss. No. When he thought of his father's death, he felt the way he always felt when someone didn't show up for lab. But perhaps that wasn't the truth of it either. He didn't know what to feel. And so he tried not to feel anything. It seemed more honest that way. A real feeling. More uh, a very introspective look at uh, the way that Wallace is feeling. Mm -hmm. And I really like this this uh, description as well because it shows how, you know, when when someone tells you someone died, kind of that social, social um, expectation mm -hmm. on your behalf as, as someone who is supposed to be mourning and then also on behalf of the person who is expressing their condolences. Um, I think it's really accurate, mm -hmm. you know, that sometimes people are kind of just trying to, it, it, it's kind of like, um, like he said, right, like a kind of ventriloquism. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I really, I, I underline that line. Sympathy was a kind of ventriloquism. Mm -hmm. It also shows you, again, like how he sees things. Like it shows mm -hmm. you how he's feeling and he shows you what he thinks of certain things. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an authenticity to to that, and I, I like that he kind of decides for himself to just under accept the confusion, rather than force himself to mm -hmm. to, you know, maybe there are deeper feelings there, that that maybe aren't quite there yet, but you know, for now it's like I have nothing to offer but my but my own confusion, and that's a certain kind of acceptance too. Yeah, and um, you know, we as readers are become more curious because we don't know exactly why he feels this way as of yet. Um, and um, it, it also reminded me of running because of social media, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting how with social media, it, 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 the, the public mourning uh, ritual has changed a bit, Yeah, you know, because um, like, I don't know, uh, like, do you kind of feel a need to publicize it? But at the same time, you also kind of want that privacy, right? And it goes back to running, you know, how the private and public yeah. diverge. So it's a weird space because you can even be criticized for not making a big deal about it mm -hmm. somehow or mentioning it. Right. Um, yeah, that public space, it's so weird. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, I've seen um, there's been at least two or three of my peers that have passed away in the last couple months. Um and and you know you talk about the 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 weird public spectacle of private mourning you know uh, all those posts turn into the my sympathies thoughts and prayers you know like it, and when it becomes a wall something about it just does seem kind of weird and then you have the people who just kind of want to know what happened what happened mm -hmm. 
and it's one of those things well like that's not this is not time to ask that stuff and it's it's such a weird a weird confusing space so it's interesting to to look at that little moment mm-hmm. uh, something that maybe we've all experienced in some way mm-hmm. for sure and we come to find that he didn't actually attend the funeral and um you know um at first Emma thinks that it's Simone, whom they call the quote-unquote she-demon, who runs the lab. But um, it's it's not because of that. Um, and, you know, we looked at a lot of funerals, if you all remember, at uh, in uh, Everything Begins and Ends at the Kentucky Club. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting how here it's the absence of one that, um, his absence in one that kind of produces, um, you know, more... You know, they're not really probing, you know, they're not really probing, well, you know, why not and things like that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're just thinking it's, like, understandable. Um, what else did you have after that, Vanessa? Um, well, I just wanted to touch on one thing on page 34. Mm-hmm. Um, in that first paragraph, when he's talking about what people expect of you when you lose someone in your family. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought that things had to be a certain way with family. They thought you had to feel something for them, and it had to be the same thing that everyone felt, or else you were doing it wrong. How could he laugh at the thought of not going to his own father's funeral? How strange could he be? Wallace did not think he was strange. He did not think he was wrong or bad for laughing either, but he made his face into a calm mask of quiet, still sadness. Yeah, what did you think about that? Um... I think it goes back to what we were just saying earlier about how... um, People think you're supposed to react a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, or people think they're supposed to react a certain way when you tell them that you lost someone. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like um, he seems that it would not be genuine, right? That if he simply cries about it, yes, he'll get sympathy, but it's just, it's 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 fake, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think there's more to be said about him reckoning with that honesty and um you know that 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 even though they say you know blood is thicker than water there's more under the surface here than meets the eye um and here it's also kind of interesting socially and i think we had talked about this briefly last episode with tom who's emma's partner because um to console so consolation after after you tell someone died you know that they died you kind of just give their condolences and if they're in person you know there's better there's more intimate ways of doing that but uh so emma kisses uh wallace in the mouth and tom sees that right and then he gets super jealous but then of course you know we've we know that we've know that um wallace is gay and so, you know, that's what one thing they mention. And so after he finds that out, he kind of just backs off. But it's kind of interesting how Tom just kind of loses it at first after finding out that, um, after seeing them, you know, kissing the mouth. Um, so it is kind of an interesting dynamic, you know, of how is it that Emma's showing affection towards um, Wallace because of it. Um, and... Besides Emma and, and Tom, um, there's also, as you mentioned, Miller. And um, so uh, they're having dinner, right? And then Miller ends up getting um, like salt in his eye, right? Or what was it? 
No, he gets um, like jalapenos. Jalape- like, they call them. Pep- they said peppers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, nachos and stuff uh, that he um, they were eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you had forty one, but on forty one, um, it's a very it's a very interesting scene because here at the top, um, you know, so milk, right? Uh, he's using milk to kind of, you know, help the, his eye, you know, stop crying and all that and uh, burning. And um, it says, Wallace twisted the cap from the milk bottle and held it over Miller's eyes. His hands shook. A drop of milk fell from the lip of the bottle and landed on Miller's cheek, just below his eyelashes. Wallace swallowed. He watched Miller breathe. He watched Miller wet the corner of his mouth. Water dripped from the tap. Um, so in this scene, um, Wallace has offered to help him clean out his eye. Um, but I, um, I read this scene in a very essential way. You know, the, the symbolism of the milk, the fact that uh, he's kind of pouring it over him into his eyes and his face. And then that Miller, that Miller himself kind of wets his mouth. You know, it's it's all very sensual, and it kind of um, foreshadows ultimately what is end up going to happen, what ends up happening here with um, with Miller and um, and Wallace. Um, but I think it also shows that um, you know Wallace is is a, is a is a good guy. You know, he he doesn't have to help him, but he does. And uh, it's, I think, also something like kind of, it's, it can be awkward, but the way that the two do it, it just seems very harmonious. And I think that's, that speaks to like the chemistry that they have uh, between them. Um, did you have, Vanessa, like the scene where they end up um, getting together once they both decide to leave the party? No. No. Um, if you all turn to page uh, 51, um, so they both end up leaving Wallace first and then Miller follows. And uh, even though they both live in different directions, um, Miller um, ends up, you know, get, uh, getting together with, with Wallace here. Um, and um, it's all very, um, like, um, it, it's a little awkward at first precisely because uh miller mentions that he's never been with someone of this of the same uh, gender here um and um so it mentions here wallace couldn't remember the last time he had lain with someone this way in that nearly innocent configuration that comes before sex when both parties pretend to want everything other than that leaving their bodies wind up to the point of unbearable tension Wallace was, and here at the bottom, Wallace was determined to give Miller what nobody had thought to give him, determined that at the end of this, whatever it was, Miller wouldn't learn to fear his body or what it could contain. Miller's fingers dug into his hair as his head bobbed between Miller's thigh. He took Miller Miller deeper into his throat, and there was a final strangled gasp. And um, this not only started with him helping him, you know, get that out of his, get his eyes better, but at the end, I don't know if, if y'all remember, but um, Miller reaches out to Wallace and like he, he ends up holding his hand. And so it's a very tender moment that Miller apologizes for at first, 
but Wallace, you know, understands. And um, the way that the scene is set up, I, I really liked, as I, we talked about last time, the sensuality of it, because he's able to show that Wallace isn't being pushy. And I think that's very important in any kind of, of you know, relationship or, you know, any kind of uh, sexual encounter in this case, because, you know, especially Miller, right, he, he kind of was, was apprehensive about it. But Wallace is able to, you know, make him feel comfortable and not force, you know, force something, right, that isn't going to be genuine. So just wanted to mention that scene. Um, after that, I had one on 55. What? My next one's not until 81. Okay. Um, so um, 55, I just want to mention briefly because, so... Um, after that sexual encounter, um, uh, it's also interesting how Miller is able to bond more with Wallace because Miller mentions that his mom died two years ago, he says here. Um, and then, you know, kind of the same thing with Wallace, right? He says on the bottom of 54, what I know is that it doesn't matter if you didn't know them or they didn't know you. My mom was a real bitch. She was mean, hateful, a liar, and spent my whole life tearing me down. When she died, I really, I don't know. Your parents aren't people until they're suffering. They aren't people until they're gone. Um, and then, you know, expressing more connection here on 55 with Wallace, he says, um, I can't tell you what to do about your dad. I can't tell you what to feel, Wallace, but I'm here if you need me. I'm your friend if you need me. Um... And then he kind of just reflects on the whole situation and says, um, Miller lay on top of him and drew the blanket over. And Wallace, for the first time, let someone inside him. It hurt at first, like it always did, but that pain and the joy of his body remembering its keenest pleasure was enough to get him hard again and through it. Miller was easy on him, but we knew what he wanted and he pursued it relentlessly. They were both breathing hard by the time it was over. Um... <clears throat> I don't know if you remember, he has gone to be with a woman, but it reminded me a lot of, of Jose Luis and Javier, I think are their names, in the sense that um, they also, you know, ended up cooking up together and, and they were both gay. And it was kind of a similar situation where um, they ended up, they were talking about the loss of, of, of life, like their uncle. And eventually, you know, that ended up them bonding together. So I think it's it's important to know how Miller expressing how his mom died. You know, it's this very similar kind of situation where the parent is distant. And the, the point of like how you don't know that they're suffering until they're gone. Right. So even though like if, if someone has like crappy parents, you know, it's like you lose them and you still feel it. Mm-hmm. you know um and ultimately that is what ends up them having having sex here again um where it's there is penetration involved yeah there's like a, a vulnerability and and sharing that grief mm-hmm. that kind of space and it's it's an openness that allows them to you know find solace you know in each other yeah <clears throat> yeah certainly that vulnerability right like mm-hmm. Wallace from the very beginning has had trouble opening up, but it's by sharing the loss of life of someone close to them that they are able to 
bond having that similar experience too i think helps yeah yeah like i guess it helps you not feel alone yeah what did you have uh, um after that vanessa was it still chapter one that um, no i don't think so no it's in chapter two okay so what did you have in chapter two um on page 81 mm -hmm. um it's the paragraph where they're talking about um money and all of the different how they're basically all watching one another to see who's doing what. Um, so it says, money is always on their minds. Who got the big depart departmental fellowship? Miller. Whose advisor had a grant rejected? Lucas. Which lab pr pr receives private research dollars? Wallace's. Whose project is likely to translate well to industry? Ingus. Who will grab the job at Brandy's? Caroline. Who will take the job at MIT? Nora, a postdoc in... Yisingvai's mm -hmm. lab. Who is maybe leaving for Harvard? Cole's advisor. For Columbia? Emma's advisor. For UT Southwestern? No one. So yeah, I really like how it describes like this person's doing this and this person's not doing this. Mm -hmm. It also talks about, like you said, that the competitiveness, right? You know, that yes, you have to work together in the lab as a team. Mm -hmm. But as we come to find out with Dana, especially, right, like it, it's super, um, people can be super um, envious of you if like, and totally even like uh, sabotage your work, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I also like a little at the bottom there where it says um, fellowships lead to good postdocs, good postdocs lead to good grants, good grants lead to faculty positions, more or less commensurate with the stature one's faculty advisor. Right, it all rises and falls on money, um, and we come to find that Wallace has like a big stipend, you know, that mm -hmm. he's able to like live comfortably, relatively comfortably, and it's a scene where like, um, you know, uh, if anyone's, you know, it, the the scene where like you have to like be super gracious to someone who has sponsored you, right? Like one of your donors, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so it's kind of a funny little moment there. Um, and I think what I also found interesting is like how different their journeys are, you know, everyone seems to be going to a different place. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think chapter two, was it Vanessa that had mentioned, uh, Henrik as well, right? Already? Um, I believe so. Yeah. Yes. yes. I know we had mentioned them already, uh, in our first episode, um, but he ends up at Vassar, I think. So he, he does manage to mentor uh, Wallace and like teach him a lot of different ways to conduct these lab experiments that really get now down into the science of of you know biochemistry or, and but um so he's kind of not there anymore. But we do find about uh, about him through those flashbacks. Um. We had mentioned uh, Dana last time as well. Yes. And um, I, th I know you probably have a passage or two. I had one on a little back here on 75 because um, Dana is the youngest from the lab. Like, in other words, she's the newest one. Um, and on 75 here, the big paragraph, it says... Um, you know, Wallace is kind of complaining about how, like, she's not keeping up with the work. Um, and Bridget 
uh, who's actually a Chinese-American, says, it doesn't have to make sense. She's gifted, spitting out Simone's favorite word for Dana, but meaning the opposite. Wallace laughs, gifted is the sweetness meant to make the bitterness of failure palatable, that a person can fail again and again, but it's all right because they're gifted, they're worth something. Wallace thinks um, that if the world has made up its mind about what you have to offer, if the world has decided it wants you, needs you, then it doesn't matter how many times you mess up. What Wallace wants to know is where the limit is. When is it no longer forgivable to be terrible? When does it time come you've got to deliver on your gifts? It's a really interesting meditation on how someone gets that gifted label, right? Like in high school, you have to gifted and talented, you mm -hmm. know, and um, DT or whatever. And all of a sudden, because of that, instead of actually being a way for like you to mentor others because you're, you're gifted, right? Quote, unquote. Dana, you know, everyone kind of knows that about Dana and Dana kind of uses that to her advantage, right? That she's allowed these chances, second and third chances, that Wallace becomes very resentful of. Uh, and Vanessa, I don't know if you had like a specific moment from this chapter about that. Um, mine was on page 95, but I don't know if you have something before that. Um... 90 just 90 95 okay yeah uh, for me it was just 90 oh okay uh yeah so just a little before that and i have 95 as well but um uh i like the, the imagery here um so we had mentioned that the bird on the cover and there's a lot of uh, avian imagery in the in the novel i really like this meditation here outside there are birds in the pine tree across the street small dark birds fluttering near the top of the tree. tree. How strange to be a bird, Wallace thinks, to have the world beneath you, that inversion of scale, what is small becoming large, what is large becoming small, the way a bird can move when it were at once in space, no dimension unconquerable. He feels at mercy be at being left alone. Um, I, I just like that little scene where, you know, he's kind of feeling like a bird in some sense, but yet he's also aware of like how birds do have that freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but a little after that, you, you said you had a um, 95? Yes. So I think here they get into an argument, right? Yes. Um, so he kind of asks her, well, he says that he heard a rumor that she messed up his project. Mm -hmm. Um. And so he's like, well, did you? And she's like, I can't believe you would think that. He's like, well, I didn't say that that's what I thought I was asking you. I was just asking you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, I don't think that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they get into an argument. Um, and she um, she ends up calling him a misogynist. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's interesting how she says that, because um, he tells her that he's not. A misogynist and she says you don't get to define what misogyny is to a woman um and then she later on says if i say you're a misogynist then you're a misogynist and i feel like that's a really terrible argument mm -hmm. but i feel like that's the approach that a lot of people take mm. um when they're arguing mm. is just to insult the other person mm. um i don't think i also don't think that um how she says that mm -hmm. If she says it, then that's what it is. Right. Um, I don't 
agree with that. Um, I feel like she's saying, like, I get to define the word because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think that, <laughs> I don't think that that's correct. I think that the word already has a definition. Mm-hmm. So the person either falls into the category or they don't. Right. Mm. And I feel like she's kind of, um, because he came and asked her that, she's using it and she's saying, this is what I'm labeling you as. Mm-hmm. It's a precarious kind of labeling for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is a rough thing to like argue, like you know, if you're a man, like I'm not. Like, well, stop, man. You know, you can't like, yeah. mansplain misogyny kind mm-hmm. of type thing. Her her logic is kind of um, weird too, right? Because right after that, she she kind of uses this reasoning of like you're a gay black guy, you know, and you want to use it as like a and and, he, and again, right. he's like I I I don't, but it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a you see a lot of identity politics coming out in this argument. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's one thing for her to call him a misogynist, which is even more extreme than just saying he's being sexist. But it's wholly another thing to say that, like, because he is gay and black, like, she she somehow thinks he gets a free pass because of it, right, when the opposite is true. And I think you mentioned last time, Vanessa, that Dana kind of reminded you of of Haley from Hate You Give. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um. And it gets even worse, right? Because on on the next page, uh, on page um, ni- actually page ninety six, you know, she says that like women are the new ends and the new Fs, right? Both very derogatory terms, uh, and you know that's where like um, you know Wallace practically loses it. But as a black man, I think he's also able to internalize the rage. And I think that's really important when it comes to people who are black and African-American is that these kinds of encounters and microaggressions, you have to remain calm because like someone might have a gun, right? Or someone might call the police on you. Um, but it, the, 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 the nerve of, of Dana just using both those terms in a way that is actually meant to put him down, uh, by saying that women are just unique and, and that they're the new oppressed ones, right? That she's looking to find a new kind of oppression while using oppressive terms for black people and gay people, um, and I really like um, in the next page, 97 was mine, where he meditates on how um, Simone, you know, I get why they call her the she-demon, because Simone apparently always takes Dana's side and pretty much implies that Wallace is only there, like he's getting chances because um, he. Like, uh, I guess they consider him like the affirmative action hire in a way. Um, but he says here on the page 97, um, and, and Simone also implies that because he's black, like he's not doing a good job, right? That she's being racist too. But he says, the most unfair part of it, Wallace thinks, is that when you tell white people that something is racist, they'd hold it up to the light and try to discern if you're telling the truth as if they can tell by the grain if something is racist or not. And they always trust the old judgment. It's unfair because white people have a vested interest in underestimating racism, its amount, its intensity, its shape, its effects. They are the fox in the hen house. I think it's it's a really important and brilliant point on the part of Wallace in terms of how um, 
it's important to note that white people don't get to define what is racist. Um, and that sometimes they use that, you know, against you, right? Because they say, well, I'm not being racist, right? It's people of color who can determine that. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's kind of, you really sympathize here while it's like everything he's going through, these encounters. Um, did you have another one after that, Vanessa? On the in the same chapter or no? Yeah, my next one was one eleven. Okay, you can go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so in chapter three, um, so after that whole encounter with Dana and Simone, um, chapter three is where um, Cole and Wallace have a discussion while playing tennis about um how. Vincent is apparently like exploring online the online world um, and so it says here um, um, like uh, Cole, Cole mentions uh, Wallace mentions that the, the gay app you mean and that's it yeah uh, Cole says and he says here Cole has always made sure to mention that he is not on the app and that he's relieved to have found Vincent before the app of such technology geolocation finding the nearest queers for fucking or whatever wallace always has to keep himself from saying that cole would have done well on the app he is tall and good looking in an average sort of way he's funny and quippy gentle he is also white which is never a disadvantage with gay men but wallace says none of these things because to say them would disrupt cole's view of the average gay man as shallow and kind of stupid they are shallow and kind of stupid but no more than any other group Wallace only deleted the app because he had gone try to watching himself be invisible to them. Uh, and he says, I saw Vincent on there last night. I suspected he was on there, so I made a fake profile. Um, and uh, so the, it's interesting how Wallace doesn't actually share that with him. But we, of course, find out through that uh, narration how he feels about Cole. Um, and it's it's kind of an interesting discussion on like how um, this dating app that is made uh, made for those in the LGBTQ community, um, how Cole would fit in because he is white. Um, and um, so I, I, I just found that really interesting and how, you know, I don't know enough about that um, universe to be able to, you know, talk about it and in, in, in from experience, but it seems that like um, there's a lot of like um, interracial dynamics that come into play when it comes to that. Um, and Vincent himself, um, if you remember Vanessa and Richie, he he um, the reason he he was on the app is because this person named Roman, who was like a French dude, um, he brought up this idea of like, well, what if you watch your partner have sex? You know, and so he brings up this element of like being in an open relationship, I guess you could call it. Um, and uh, that kind of just, you know, puts this idea into Vincent's head. Um, and so Wallace kind of tries to be comforting, you know, about that. But what passage did you have around or did you have something after that? I have 122. Um, so as Wallace and Cole are talking, um, Cole is trying to figure out how he can address the situation with Vincent. Um, and 
Wallace is telling him that he has to talk to him about it. Like, he can't just avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he tells him towards the middle of the page. He says, people do this. They fight. They hide things. They argue. It means you're in something that's worth giving a damn about. And I really like that description of relationships because I do feel like it's like a give and a take. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, yeah, Go sorry. No. I was just going to add that, um, like, if you don't feel like you, like, if you don't fight for it, you probably don't want it that bad. Mm. Um, and so I really like that he described the relationship like that. Yeah, throughout this whole encounter, I really like that Wallace is able to kind of provide the really interesting advice, really good mm-hmm. advice, and um, also kind of help Cole understand, well, you know, don't just assume that, like, he's cheating on you, right? Mm-hmm. Although there's that passage where uh, Cole mentions that looking is cheating, right? That, like, yes. you don't even have to get, or get with someone. But even for that, Wallace has an explanation, right? And I think he mentions, like, um, well, you know, like, have you thought about how maybe you haven't communicated with him about this. Um, Because he mentions that, like, Vincent brought it up, but, you know, Cole wanted nothing to do with it, right? So, like, he didn't even consider having an argument about it. And so this goes back to Wallace's point, you know, about that, well, like, you sometimes do have to argue with someone, right? Because it shows you do care. Um, And then on on the next page, on page 126, um... He, he talks about, uh, he flashes back to the scene where Roman says that that phrase, you know, about how if your boyfriend is watching, you know, that that's the best, right? And um, um, Wallace offers this up at the bottom um, where, I mean, it, it doesn't flash back. Um, he, Cole is just telling him what happened. And Wallace says... The narrator says, Wallace bites the tip of his tongue, which is already so raw today. He swallows down what he wants to say, that a person doesn't belong to you just because you're in a relationship, just because you love them, that people are people and they belong only to themselves, or so they should. Miller can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, is the thought that flashes through. He has a jealous heart. Love is a selfish thing. This reminds me a lot of Ben Sines' work because Ben Sines also talks about love in a similar way. Um, mm-hmm. And here, it's also another interesting argument that Wallace makes that, again, this time he doesn't actually tell him that uh, directly, right? Uh, he just kind of implies it by asking, well, what does Wallace, what, what, what does Vincent think about this? Um, but it's kind of an interesting concept that, like, when someone is in a relationship that you don't possess them, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's hard to do in like traditional monogamous relationships. Um, but it's something that shows Wallace's open-mindedness when it comes to relationships. I also underlined that that little paragraph. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we're, we're getting a, a clear picture of, of the kind of person that Wallace is. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be very um, inquisitive, very understanding, uh, very sensual, um, and and just um, um, very hardworking too. You know, given by what he's doing in the lab, he seems to be like working twice as hard to 
you know, unlike Dana, right, who seems to be getting off just because she he's she's gifted. Uh, so this is the, the the first half of the novel, roughly, but um, we're going to keep going this discussion. Uh, so if you haven't uh, been able to um, to catch the book yet, you still got time. Um, and we might be setting up an opportunity for you all to send us questions. So look look at our so look keep track, watch the, our social media space for ways that you can maybe send us questions ahead of time for discussion. Um, and we gladly love to be able to take those questions of yours, even if you haven't read the book, but maybe just based on our discussion of it. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode discussing Real Life by Brandon Taylor. And if you haven't read it, we hope we inspire you to pick up a copy. Follow us on Instagram at literallyliterary.ep and on Twitter at literallylitep.